It gives me very great pleasure to introduce um, Christabel Sassner and Steve Hewitt. Just a, a brief word about them uh, for their book launch. So Christabel is a professor in the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies at the University of Ottawa, a historian who focuses on women's reproductive health. Her topics of research include the history of sex education, uh, contraception and abortion, and she has particular interest in second wave feminist politics, the Cold War, and representations of animals. I sound like I'll keep you fairly busy. Um, Steve Hewitt, uh, I've known him, I say, for much longer, a uh, friend and colleague of many years, and a former Bax uh, president, is a senior lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Birmingham. Uh, as I say, a former president of the British Association for Canadian Studies. He's written extensively about security and intelligence, uh, both in the past uh, and the present. A uh, fairly frequent commentator on TV, if there's any kind of Canadian event, normally a disaster, uh, <laughs> uh, to, to make the news, uh, they'll call up Steve. Um, and he's currently working on a history of terrorism uh, and counter-terrorism in Canada. Uh, and so uh, they'll be telling us about their new book, uh, Just Watch Us, RCMP Surveillance of the Women's Liberation Movement, in Cold War Canada. So please join me in welcoming uh, Stephen Christopher. Thank you very much, Tony. And uh, thank you so much for hosting us and, and thanks to the Institute as well. I'm already looking at our Scrabble notes thinking this is going to come across as really disjointed, but uh, it's a sort of negotiations one has to do when you've got co-authors. It applies to presentations as well. So. We're going to kind of introduce each ourselves and uh, talk a little bit about the book and then um, a little bit about the making of the book, which is quite an interesting story in itself in terms of the documents we use, but also some of the implications, including ethical implications around the documents that we use. And then we're going to end off by um, reading passages that each other wrote in the book, and then we'll throw it open to you for... Uh, discussion. So we're not going to we're not going to talk for too long, um, which you'd probably be grateful for. But uh, so just uh, to reiterate, uh, I'm Steve Hewitt. I'm at the University of Birmingham. Uh, I, I work on security and intelligence. I've been doing things on the RCMP for over 25 years, which I know is probably hard to believe. But I was a, I was a child scholar, so that's how we account, account for that. And I've known the person next to me um, for almost 22 years of those 25 years. And uh, we first met in November 1996 at a conference in Sudbury, Ontario. And uh, we generated a friendship out of that uh, that became an academic collaboration that led to a couple of articles. And, uh, and after uh, a period of years that led to this book uh, that we're here to talk about. And I, I'm pleased to say that um, we're still friends as well. After the, there were some rough patches, but, and at one point we thought for the sake of the manuscript we would stay together and uh, <laughs> carry it on through. So 
I'll get in trouble afterwards for saying that. But uh, so I just want to acknowledge a few people that uh, helped in creating this book, and uh, I'd just like to thank my family. <laughs> None of them are here tonight. But I'd like to to thank them, and actually my uh, eldest uh, helped put the index together. And my daughter proofread the book and actually caught a few things that both of us and the copy editor missed. So, and I didn't pay either of them to do it, which is one of the benefits of having, yes, Crystal actually did pay. Actually, I think you paid me, but not for Yeah. And I'd like to thank my youngest child for just being an inspiration. And most of all, I'd like to thank my partner, Carrie, for putting up with all of this uh, for the, the last. Uh, few years. So. Okay, thank you, Steve. Um, so Steve is known as my academic husband, and I have his academic life, and clearly I was a child bride uh, <laughs> when we began our, our relationship. Um, we, we have an extensive acknowledgement section, um, and I left mine very open, and I'd like to reiterate um, three things that are already in the acknowledgements, and one is that I feel very fortunate to work at the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies and to have had a fantastic um, education in feminist history. And so it was inevitable that I would end up writing in some way, shape, or form um, on the women's liberation movement because I'm surrounded by absolutely fierce, feisty, wonderful, um, admirable women um, in, in my family situation and also in my work situation. So it would be impossible for me to, to name every single one of them. Um, the, the second person um, that I, I need to acknowledge is, is Steve. Um, uh, the book would never have come to fruition uh, without, without him. This is our academic baby, and, uh, and I'm very proud of our collaboration um, and this, this little creature here that you see um, on the screen. And last but not least, on a very sad note, um, during the course of writing, uh, researching and writing the book, um, we lost a colleague in Canada, Marie Hammond Callahan, who uh, is a historian, uh, was a historian, and also um, did work on, on Voice of Women, one of the groups that we mention in, in our, our book. And we're very sad that Marie could not be with us uh, today. Um, yes. So let me uh, tell you why we called this book Just Watch Us. Um, we originally wanted uh, to call it uh, Sex Spying, and, uh, and then we, we uh, went into um, Spotted Throughout with Red, which was actually a phrase that came out of some of the documents that we'll be looking at, and Steve will be telling you about these documents in a, in a moment. And then the um, editor in Montreal, Jonathan Crago, suggested that we change it to Watch It. And uh, I did not like that title. And so then um, I came up with Just Watch Us, and Steve agreed. And for the Canadians in the audience, you may um, twig to this particular phrase because it is a pun or a riff on Pierre Trudeau's famous um, uh, comment, just watching. Uh, he was uh, asked at one point how far he would go in terms of what he was doing 
in, in Quebec. This is in the early 70s um, when there was a lot of sort of upheaval and he said uh, to the reporter, just watch me. So, so it's a pun on, on Trudeau's uh, comment. It's also referring, of course, to sort of this widespread surveillance net um, that we spent a lot of time researching. Uh, so Just Watch Us is really speaking to sort of state surveillance of many, many groups and individuals. And lastly, I, I really liked it because it, it sort of captures the very sassy and defiant attitude of women's liberation, the women's liberation movement and women's liberation groups in their style and their goals and their, and their strategies. Uh, a couple of other acknowledgements. I, I think I kind of thanked you, but I will um, reiterate sure. that, the, uh, <laughs> that it wouldn't have happened without, obviously, without Christabel. I'd also like to thank the publisher, McGill Queen's University Press, who actually kindly has helped fund tonight as well, and, and Richard um, Bagley is here, who's uh, MQUD representative. And Tony, who answered many, many of yeah, well, I think Richard did all yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and Richard might pigeonhole some of you during the break to see if you might have book proposals that. Uh, <laughs> so, I just what attracted me to this whole project um, was this idea that until 1974, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, that I'm sure many of you have heard of, was an all-male police force, and yet from basically from 1969 on through to the 1980s they were actively carrying out surveillance against groups that were predominantly female. And I, I found that quite an interesting uh, puzzle as to how they went uh, about doing that. And, and we also you know, thought about why. Why would they do this? Why did they target these women's groups? Um, what sort of methods did they use? And we also thought this is something that is incredibly relevant I mean, I, to me, history is always relevant to the present, but this is obviously incredibly relevant. It's relevant not only in Canada, where the uh, new commissioner of the RCMP is the first woman to hold that position, where there's been a huge scandal in the RCMP of male abuse of female members, where the RCMP has had to pay out, was it $100 million? Yeah. Uh, in damages to current and former female Mounties, um, but also it's relevant to the UK. I mean, many of you probably heard of the scandal involving the London Metropolitan Police with the special demonstration squad where you had male police officers pretending to be activists to spy on left-wing groups and actually having relationships and in a couple of cases having children with those that they were spying on. And, obviously, and so this is something... I mean, the SDS scandal is not something that just happened recently, but has happened over the last couple of decades. So there's a longer history, obviously, um, around surveillance, around gender, but obviously since 9-11, many of these questions have come to the fore in terms of who gets targeted, why do they get targeted, and what are the implications in liberal democratic states of state surveillance uh, whereby people not go to an event like this without worrying that potentially there might be an informant in the audience or somehow it's being recorded and used, um, used by others. Um, do you want to show the slides? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So 
the, the base, this project was based on police files. And in Canada, you have the equivalent of here, which would be the Freedom of Information Act, same as in the US and Canada. In fact, I've got a, a distance learning PhD student who's doing a history of this. In Canada, it's got the wonderful name of access to information, which I think is very Canadian. As opposed to freedom of information, it's access to information. Um, so we made access to information requests for, which in, in the end was probably several thousand pages uh, of documents. And I just want to show you, and this is, was one of the complications. In fact, we have a whole chapter in the book on the, uh, the files, on some of the issues the files raised up, some of the ethical issues, which this is something that Christabel really brought to the project and, some, and caused me actually to, to reflect uh, on the implications of using these files in a way that I had never done uh, before. I mean, I, I come at it from a perspective of having used these files again for 25 years, that openness is a good thing, that restrictions um, stop us from really understanding the extent of what states have been up to. Uh, but Christabel, and she'll talk more about this in a minute, really raised that there are ethical issues to go along with this, this greater openness. But I just want to show you an example of the sorts of things that sometimes you end up with when you put in requests for, uh, for the files. Sometimes you end up with this. <laughs> so imagine trying to write a 300-page book as this as your source material. So I should explain, these records are the records of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Security Service. They're held at the Library and Archives Canada. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police Security Service no longer exists. It was disbanded in 1984, and it was replaced by something called the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. It's very close to being the equivalent of Canada's MI5. So even though, but even though the records are at the Library and Archives Canada, CSIS, Canadian Security Intelligence Service, still has the final say as to what is released to researchers. And it doesn't matter if the records are from 1984 or from 1884. If they're security records, even if they're at the Library and Archives Canada, CSIS has the final say over what gets released. So things that get edited, cut out, are material supplied by foreign governments, um, material supplied by provincial governments, uh, material that might be injurious to the national security of Canada, and that's obviously a very broad, broad definition. Um, but so this is what you can often end up with. I'll give you another example. You get something like this, which is that, and so <laughs> you can imagine that, that they, it's the point where they won't even give you that bit. So they actually just say, we're not even going to release these pages at all, that we can't even give you a title and all of that. Uh, or you get something like this, which gives you a little more information, at least the one on the right. Now, you don't always get the deletions. And actually, one of the things that uh, it's a wonderful phrase that Christabel uses in the book, the Mountie Bounty, that one of the amazing things about these files that is something that we really reflected on is that it, it what was significant about the files, perhaps even more than the actual police records, was that they were pack rats. They were collecting documents about these women's groups, documents created by the women's groups. So flyers, pamphlets, uh, notes of meetings, correspondence. 
they created this amazing archive of material. And much of that material is not censored at all and gives you an insight into the history of the group. But in terms of working on the police, you often end up with this sort of material. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if we could see what was behind the, uh, like in The Wizard of Oz, find out what is behind? It's one of the, the truly, I, I remember sending uh, an email to Christabel when the subject was uh, OMG, because one of the things that happened in the, we had sent in so many access requests that I assume it was by mistake, the archive sent us an uncensored file and then sent us the censored version of the file. So we got several hundred pages of completely uncensored documents, and then we received the censored version. I'm sure it was by, I'm sure it was by accident, not someone deliberately trying to assist us in our uh, process. But we were able to then see what is it that they cut out and what is it that they leave in. It was about a, it was about a group that actually didn't even fit with our women's liberation. Uh, it was about a, a women's a communist group in Quebec, La Ligue des Femmes du Québec. Uh, so this is the censored version, and then here's the uncensored version. And the thing that we realized uh, very quickly is much of the deletions were to protect informants. And that, I'd say, was 80, 90% of the things that they cut out were to protect the identities of informants. And they don't, the informants aren't even named in the documents. In fact, um, show you this one. Here, you can see an example right here. So it just says, on the 30th of January, 75, a reliable source supplied this office with a list of members of the captioned organization. And the reliable source is codename MC76. And I think MC stands for Montreal City because this was in Montreal. So they don't actually name the informants for security purposes, but when you look at all of the documents, you quickly realize that certain, and we, we identified, I think, about 30 distinct informants just in this small group in Quebec. You very quickly realize that certain people named in the, the, the body of the document, there is often a correlation with certain sources appearing, and then you could actually map it and realize that it was either one of the people named in the document or someone very close to them uh, on a recurrent basis. So the censorship that was going on was about protecting sources, and that is not so much about worrying about the safety of those sources, that's more about the Canadian Security Intelligence Service wanting to be able to recruit informants in the future, and those informants having the expectation that no one will ever know what they were doing. And uh, so th there's a pattern here of, it's about as much about the future as it is about the past. Okay, thank you. Um, so we both independently, uh, through use of these files for other projects, discovered that the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, were, were spying on women's groups. And so when we started asking for more files, we had to ask ourselves the question, why? Why were they doing this? So were they spying on these women's groups because they were women's groups? Um, we weren't sure. And then my initial hypothesis was that they were spying on these groups because um, many of these groups were involved in um, abortion referral. And so at that time, abortion was um, legal, but under very restrictive circumstances. 
And so um, the, the kinds of referral um, that was happening was technically uh, against the law. So I suggested to Steve that this may be one reason why uh, these groups were being spied upon. And then the more and more we read, you know, and again, we're reading these fragments of the police reports, uh, to which are appended all of the, you know, the minutes of meetings and pamphlets and newspaper clippings. Um, so the more and more we, we read through, the more and more we came to the conclusion that they were, uh, they were not spied upon because they were, they were women or because they were women's groups, and they were certainly not spied upon because some of these women's groups were involved in abortion referral, but it was because of um, the real or imagined or presumed connections of these individual women and the women's liberation groups to um, left-wing politics. So at that time, certainly in the 60s and, and 70s, you could have one individual who was involved in the women's liberation group, but then she could also be involved in, uh, you know, um, uh, in, in sort of anti-war anti uh, demonstrations. She could also have perhaps traveled to Cuba. Um, uh, she, she may have uh, styled herself as a Maoist or a Trotskyist. And, and so one individual could have had many, many um, affiliations and many connections. And so it was quite remarkable because the, through these individuals and through these groups and their connections, the RCMP were able to spy upon a vast range of other individuals and other groups. Um, so, so you see this sort of panoptical effect that's, that's extremely, uh, extremely widespread. And what we did, uh, sort of the, the, the book centers on two major events. That's, that's a spy. Uh, two, two major events. One being the abortion caravan, which uh, took place in 1970, and a second one, uh, an Indo uh, the um, Indo-Chinese uh, Indo conference, which took place in 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 71. So the abortion caravan, 1970, um, had to do with women who were uh, upset about this 1969 abortion law that was very restrictive, and um, sort of gathered up followers. Um, and protesters, and they and they traveled from Vancouver to Ottawa, the capital of Canada, and they had a, a, a you know, massive demonstration on Parliament Hill. Uh, they ended up uh, going to the prime minister's residence. Uh, they sort of, for effect, they carried a coffin that was filled with coat hangers to represent the deaths of women from illegal abortions, and they dumped this coffin on the front lawn of the prime minister. And at that time, it was Pierre Trudeau, the father of the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, um, who has actually been very pro-choice and very pro-choice in, in public, uh, unlike, his, uh, unlike his father. And, uh, and so that was, that was one event, and, and this event was, was followed, and, and the RCP knew about this, all the way from the planning stages, all the way to, to Parliament Hill, to their, their sort of protest on Parliament Hill. The, the second um, core piece of the group is our analysis of the 1971 Indo-Chinese conference. This took place in Vancouver and Toronto. We're not sure why. We have many, many files available for the Vancouver leg, uh, but not the Toronto leg. And we speculate in, in the book as to why this may be. And the reason why this Indo-Chinese conference was held in Canada is because it couldn't be held in the in the U.S. So there are a lot of sort of 
current day echoes. It was too dangerous for the women who were coming from Indochina to, uh, uh, to North America. Uh, they, they didn't get uh, visas uh, to the United States. And so the conference was held on, on Canadian soil. And again, uh, this time it was the RCMP in cahoots with the, with the FBI um, that, that, that were sort of spying on individuals and also groups that were involved, uh, involved in the conference. So uh, what, what, did we, what did we find? We found that although, yes, uh, there were these uh, sort of connections to the left-wing groups, and that seemed to be the main rationale for why the, the RCMP uh, cast its surveillance net so, so widely when it came to women's liberation individuals and groups. We were also really intrigued by the, the gender aspect. Um, and so this is gender in relation to a number of other variables, such as the youth of the women, uh, the ethnicity and the race of the women, uh, the, the sort of the, the regions where the women came from. And going back to a comment that Steve made earlier, it was really interesting to see how this, you know, male, uh, you know, all male force, and then after 1974, certainly a force that was dominated by by men, how they sort of spied upon, but then also interpreted what it, what it was they they thought they they were finding. So many of their um, uh, many of their sort of analyses of what was what was going on was really inflected with issues around gender around race around class around the age of the of the women and we really hope that you know when you when you sort of dig through the the book that you know you'll you'll sort of you'll see this over and over again um, the the other thing that I wanted to to go back to and this is something that that Steve raised is the issue of, of ethics um, I work with women who have had abortions or about to have abortions in the kind of work that I do. I'm a historian like Steve, and so I work with primary sources, but I also work with, with women uh, doing oral histories or interviewing women in abortion clinics. And this is a way for me to bring my, my historical research forward uh, into, the, into the current day. So before we started this, this research, before we started this collaboration, I have had to go through reams and reams of forms and ethics reviews and it goes to committees and I have to do XYZ in order for money to be released to me. That can take anywhere from six months to a year um, until I have official approval from my university because it means that my, my project will not um, uh, you know, do harm uh, to the women that I am, I am interviewing. So I was really, really fascinated to see how much personal material was in all of these files, and that the individuals in these files were also named. So a lot of the time, some of the personal information was, would you say, gossip? Yes. Yes. You know, who the women's boyfriends were, and were they living, were they still living with their parents, and and also very um, snarky. Uh, negative comments about women's appearances uh, or, or their reasons for why they were participating in, in political work. It's sort of very sort of derogatory attempt um, at, at, at building a kind of character analysis of the, women's, uh, the women or the groups that they were, that they were spying upon. And things, things came to a, a head for both of us because 
because of my experience in, in going through these, these forms and requests and committees around do no harm when I'm working with live subjects, I wanted us to err more on the side of privacy. And, and Steve, do you want to, over to you, do you want to talk more about transparency, your, your desire for Yeah, I mean, I, I just worked with yeah. these records for so many years with, uh, of state censorship, and that uh, these are records accumulated by the state, and I feel like it's our, or my job, in a sense, to try to show the public what their government, their government agencies have been up to, um, yeah. and that by censoring it, that they are, are blocking us from doing that. Right. So we had many, many uh, sort of discussions and squabbles about how to approach the documents. And so, so as I said, matters came to a head when there was this one particular file, um, and it's the only time that, and we agreed between, between us, not to make, uh, not to have an endnote uh, in reference to this, to this particular file. Because in this file, there was a, a report, and, and uh, parts of it were censored, but parts of it were not, where a, a, an informant, and I don't know if this informant is male or female, but an informant was spying on a, on a man, and this man was approached by a woman, and this woman asked the man if he knew how he could help her because she thought she was pregnant and she might want to have an abortion. And so the man, in turn, referred her to a woman's liberation group. But the man's name and the woman's name, so this could have been an acquaintance or a friend or a neighbor, they were both in these files. And given the dates of these files, it's very likely that these two individuals are still alive. And I don't know if the woman was pregnant. I don't know if she had an, an abortion. I don't know if, if, she, if she were pregnant, if she ended up giving birth. And so I really had to ask myself, what, what does this mean in terms of us, you know, as diligent historians referring to this? Because it was exciting material about how deeply intertwined an informant could be in people's lives. Were we then, as Steve put it, re-victimizing the individuals by giving readers or other historians access to the endnote that then somebody could look up? Because what happens is, once these files are requested, if they've never been opened before, they're now open to us, but they are now open to anybody. And so really, I mean, part of the difficulty of this book, I mean, there are so many difficulties in, that I found ethically in writing this book. It's not only that people can sort of now track and see who was where and, and who was dealing with whom through the endnotes. And as I say, this was the only time that we deliberately did not include an endnote with the, with the file details. But it also means that because the women's liberation groups were holding closed-door meetings, in the vast majority of the cases, the informant would have been a woman. So our sort of consternation is that the women who are very much alive, who participated in these events from the 60s to the mid-80s, which is when the book sort of stops, um, will go on the hunt 
for, for the informants. So what I suggested, and Steve agreed, is that we end the book with a, a sort of an appeal to people who are working with these classified documents. And they don't have to necessarily be state surveillance documents. They could be documents um, you know, from mental institutions or uh, you know, you know anything, anything that that is that is very sensitive. Even if the people in the documents, named in the documents, may be dead, their relatives may be very much, very much alive, right? And in the age of the internet, when just about everything and anything can be posted and can stay on the internet forever, do we then add another layer of? How do we work ethically with these documents? So we ended we ended the book with a sort of call to to think about more concerted ways of how to work with these documents instead of individually working with these documents on an ad hoc uh, basis and coming up with sort of ad hoc uh, solutions. Uh, just to add one thing to that, so under the access to information, which is subject to the Privacy Act, the names of individuals who are alive or who have been deceased for less than 20 years are supposed, are supposed to be cut out of the documents. But there's much more care given to protect the police information than to protect the information of the people being spied on, which again plays into the potential narrative of... Um, Revictimizing, so we actually ended up practicing censorship ourselves, and that we were cutting out names that should have been cut out if they had done their job properly in terms of, of censoring the, yeah. the documents. Yeah, and I think sort of you know being you know, taking a strong a stance of anti censorship is you know often seen as very rebellious and and uh, you know and, and and a kind of wagging the finger in the face of the state, right? But, but when, when we're working with these documents, we are working with individuals who either are still alive or um, you know, could have potentially very sensitive or damaging information that, that, that appears, and that appears not only in, in text form, but also um, on, on, on the internet. So, so I really, I really would, I, I would actually love to have a longer conversation with, with um, scholars who work with sensitive documents about how we work with them in a, concert, in a concerted way. Why would I have to jump through so many hoops when it's clear that, that I am working with, with live people um, in regard to the topic of abortion, but when there are these incredibly sensitive points that appear over and over again in, in a two-dimensional form, um, why is it that it's a, it's a free-for-all in terms of how I decide to, to write about this? Do we want to do the readings? Because yeah. we've already done 30 plus minutes. Oh. It's up to you. Uh, very quickly. So uh, I'm going to read a passage that Christabel wrote. This actually relates to this event. She mentioned the Indo-Chinese Women's Conference. It was the height of the Vietnam War. A group of Indo-Chinese women came over, opposed to the war. All these activists gathered in Vancouver. Uh, the police, through informants, which would have been women, uh, had extensive information about what was going on. And one of the things that emerges, uh, which is fascinating in terms of today, and you'll get a taste of this, is there's the talk of global sisterhood, which very quickly breaks down along race and ethnicity, along age, along uh, sexuality, uh, along nationality, 
And so this comes out in this passage, and I think it also plays to my innate anti-Americanism. So, um, while American delegates squabbled over the various meanings of imperialism, Canadian organizers and delegates smarted over the imperious behavior of their southern neighbors. So there's about several hundred women that have gathered at, in Vancouver. The Canadian contingent saw itself playing much the same sub subservient role toward American delegates that women play toward men in new left organizations. The document about security intended for the third world delegates asked American delegates traveling to Vancouver to recognize that they were foreigners in a nation colonized by US imperialism and to respect their Canadian hosts. Yet some Canadian organizers and delegates saw the behavior of American delegates around the issue of security as, quote, a way for American groups to flex their muscles and gain power positions at the conference. According to one account by a Canadian delegate, and this next passage is a quote, some Canadian delegates and some non-delegates who had been involved with the conference felt that they were being shit on by the whole structure of the conference and by the attitude of the other delegates. The position of the Canadians as janitors and shit workers was evident from the beginning, as only 30 Canadian delegates were permitted to attend from all the Western provinces, as opposed to approximately 400, including 34 third world women, uh, third world women from the Western United States area. So that, that's the end of the quote. Equally annoying were some of the w welcomes offered to the Indo-Chinese delegation by American delegates. Welcome to our country. And in this country, we, ignoring blindly the fact that the conference was taking place in Canada and not the United States. Toward the end of the conference, pent-up frustration against the Americans exploded. A few Canadian women calling themselves the Canadian Union of Rabbit Senseless Extremists, or CURSE, turned up to perform guerrilla theater mocking the American domination of the conference. Americans in the audience objected. A physical fight ensued, and a pregnant woman was apparently punched. Once the melee ended, the evening's scheduled entertainment began. It featured a skit in which a woman endures a series of obstacles from workplace harassment to abortion, only to be called up short at the Indo-Chinese conference. Third world delegates label her racist, Lesbian delegates label her heterosexual, and women's liberation delegates label her liberal. In the end, the woman is so overcome by guilt that she drags herself off stage. I had a lot of fun writing that. Um, so this is also to do with the Indo-Chinese conference, and this paragraph, which is written by Steve, and I have to say that Steve writes really quickly and well, and I write really slow. <laughs> so, um, uh, so this is this is a paragraph from from Steve, and you're going to get a taste here of what we did end up finding in some of the files when it wasn't when, when they weren't censored. So this is again the Indo-Chinese conference. Amidst the women assembled at the conference, there was at least one female security service informant who had journeyed to Winnipeg from Hamilton to observe the apparent subversion from up close. A subsequent police report, aided by her account to her handler back in Hamilton, contained at least 37 names of those in attendance, accompanied by a few short biographical sketches and RCMP file numbers for readers at headquarters charged with organizing relevant material that came in from the different divisions. A young woman identified as Rita McNeil, who would go on to become Cape Breton's first lady of song, was described as from Toronto Women's Caucus. She's the one who composes and sings women's lip songs. Rita McNeil, for those of you who don't know, sort of Canada's singing sweetheart from the East Coast, very, very well loved. 
Um, and she was part of the Toronto Women's Caucus when she was living in, in Toronto. So also relayed were the contents of meetings and speeches, often given to all female audiences, copies of documents distributed, distributed at the meetings, and a breakdown of delegates by age and location, with almost half in attendance being 19 to 25 years old. Even social activities related to the conference had no immunity from the Mountie gaze. The same or another informant, through salacious and crude homophobic comments, revealed either her own obsessions or the details she believed her shadowy employers wanted to know. So here's a quotation directly out of one of the, one of the uh, files. 100 sweating, uncombed women were standing around in the middle of the floor with their arms around each other, crying sisterhood and dancing. The church had, had banned the wine and cheese part of the party, so they all got bombed on vodka. Two dykes had been imported from the US to show everyone how it was done, which they proceeded to do in the middle of the floor. So we also had a lot of fun reading the uncensored police reports. Okay. okay. And I think I, that's it. I think that's well, it. We open the floor to your questions. Thank you very much.